Hi guys, great to be back with the ICSI Labs podcast. This is episode two, The Possible Futures of Therapy. I'm Anna Gatt, sitting here with my ICSI Labs co-founders, Crystal Ding. Hi guys. And Peter Istin. Hi. At ICSI Labs, we're looking at the future of human private life. How our changing lifestyles, one-person households, online communication, the gig economy, chaotic public discourse, AI and AR are and will further be transforming our lives. So, what do we mean by therapy and why is it so interesting to think about the past, present and future of therapy? To us, therapy is any non-medicated interactive process intended to restore or improve mental and emotional health. For humans, the need to talk things over has always been present. There's great research on how important words are um, when it comes to bonding, how people accommodate their vocabularies to signal attention and loyalty. We know that small communities create their own specific vocabularies and how important it is in intimate relationships to be under the impression that we understand each other without words. The term psychotherapia was actually introduced by Walter Cooper Dendy in 1853, to describe how physicians might influence the mental states of their patients by creating opposing emotions to promote mental balance. By the beginning of the 21st century, there were over a thousand different named psychotherapies. It's a huge industry. Together with self-help, in the US it comes to about $200 billion a year. It is only in the 20th century that psychotherapy has become something available for money for anyone who wants to, to, to feel better. With the pathological cases moved on to the field of psychiatry, As we say in economics, a larger market leads to more specialization. Of course, this distinction brings a lot of its own problems. See, for example, the over-medicalization of children in the United States, or the difficulty of getting medication in the UK via GP, and so on. Before the Industrial Revolutions, at least three things filled the role of what we want therapy to do today. There was talking with friends, talking with religious leaders, or listening to them, and also some form of medical treatment. Therapy appeared and spread in a crucial historical moment. There were lots of changes in labour markets, mating markets, and the market for ideas. The resulting loneliness, the rise of the middle classes, the increase of atheism, self-awareness, self-centredness, consumerism, it all led to a demand for psychotherapy. And nothing suggests that these coinciding things are going anywhere. If anything, they will be further amplified. So, we can assume safely that therapy is here to stay, and hopefully address our old and new problems. But what will it look like? Apart from therapist stars and their bestsellers, movies also promote the idea of going into therapy, often by emphasising the qualities of the therapist, or the relationship between them and the client. A few examples would be Ordinary People, Goodwill Hunting, Mr. Robot, Chelsea Handler shows The Sopranos. Some therapists have even expressed discontent over the exaggerated expectations their clients arrive with due to these overly positive influences. Other shows, of course, offer more humorous or ambiguous takes. Woody Allen or Amy Schumer will be less forgiving. Mad Men showed both good and bad sides of what can go on on the therapist's couch. Not to mention the many plays and films dealing with Freud, Jung and other historic characters. And it's also interesting to look at fiction when it comes to thinking about where is therapy going? How will it look like in the future? 
Science fiction often shows an immediate form of psychotherapy, a pill people can take immediately or they just get their brains rewired um, at the moment when some mental imbalance sets on. It's a recurring theme in dystopian uh, science fiction that a hero kind of awakens from the dystopia, from the collective hallucination, and everybody thinks they are insane at first. The Greeks, the Romans, India, China, then the emerging European middle class, basically everyone everywhere outside monotheistic theocratic systems, had philosophy and some form of virtue ethics for normal situations in day-to-day life. And medical treatment, mostly ineffective and often horrifying and harmful, was only reserved for what was considered mental illness. Then, the scientific revolution and the industrial revolutions changed everything forever. Talking and typing are important for thinking. We all have practical experience in relieving mental or emotional stress by talking or writing about it. The Socratic method, Freudian analysis, or just a normal high school or university class will prove that writing things down or discussing them can actually lead to our best ideas and revelations, not to mention getting to know other people's thoughts and words through a book, a play, or a TED Talk video. The type of loneliness we discuss when we discuss the people of today is quite a new experience. It's a bitter joke among us that solitary confinement used to be the harshest form of punishment just one step before physical torture or execution. So yeah, we had this way of dealing with our personal stuff on a daily basis. Communally, we chatted about them. But the big moral questions were handled religiously. People were not alone in the universe yet. We do have some problems using old-fashioned therapy, though. People often don't have the time to go to a therapist. It has a huge time cost. For example, Freudian analysis would be multiple times a week. And people live far from their workplaces in the city and or they don't drive. And free time goes to travel, gym or drinking. We're all massively sleep deprived. And of course, many people also don't have the disposable income necessary for going to a therapist. And quite importantly, there's also some stigma attached to going to a therapist with often deadly consequences, especially for men. Suicide is the leading cause of death among men under 45. There is also some stigma around choosing old-fashioned forms of therapy. Modern methods tend to be more along the vein of eat kale for mental health, do yoga, do something more technologically advanced, for example, headspace. So old-fashioned therapy is often considered a bit middle-aged and not vogue, so to speak. And there's also geography. Places offer different possibilities and countries different method. And, of course, Skype and other applications can be non-geographical and uh, might be more suitable to a modern world. So thinking about the future definitely makes sense. The problems remain, but the old solutions have become less self-evident. As people, we have contradicting needs and desires. Some of these revolve around conquering big cities, making intellectual progress, having adventures with many people at a lower emotional cost, and making a lot of money. However, urban lifestyle moves us far from other needs we have, to live in comforting communities, in big extended families where we feel safe and taken care of. The result is material comfort and opportunity, but increased stress and loneliness. Guess, thank God, we are in a consumer society where one of the products available is is therapy a semi-medicalized, semi-personal, but sometimes eerily effective form to talk, bond, be more conscious of our actions and calm down. 
We're sitting here with uh, our first guest, uh, Anna Jörfi, who is a psychologist and psychotherapist. And we will be talking a little bit about more traditional forms of therapy that I think a lot of people are familiar with. Anna, thank you so much for joining us, first of all. You're a therapist um, for both individuals and couples. Um, you work in London. Uh, you do both in-person appointments, uh, but you also work with certain clients via Skype. So I, I think I find your experience is very interesting. It's a little bit futuristic in a way. Uh, we can maybe presume that a lot of therapists are going to be working in these uh, various formats. Do you mind giving us a bit of an intro? How, What's uh, your approach like and how did you uh, wind up in this beautiful profession? Hello, I am a psychologist and later on I specialized in therapy. In therapies, I do uh, traditional talking therapy, I would say. I was psychoanalytically trained myself. I went through psychoanalysis, but the therapies I do are less traditional psychoanalytic in the sense that I meet people usually once or twice a week, not more often, and we sit facing each other and we talk but we also rely on psychoanalytic approach in terms of assuming that there's an unconscious both in the patient and in the therapist and the aim of the therapy is exploring and interpreting this un unconscious and yeah also i think that in the center of the therapy there's a relationship that there are two people with uh, feelings and thoughts exchanged and then they build up over time a relationship and over time this relationship also becomes um, the object of exploration not just the material that the patient brings in in terms of their past or their current life. I, I only did um, therapy over Skype at one particular phase in my life and interestingly when I started going into therapy with this woman we had never met before So we did, I don't know, one year of therapy over Skype, and then I only met her afterwards. So I did a kind of a an in-real-life session with her when we were in the same city. And it was very interesting. How was it for to, you, this change? To, to meet. I think because of the setting of talking with somebody from the intimacy of my bedroom, always at the same time, it was really, it was even a bit more intimate as an experience than going into somebody's office. Um, if I can choose I would definitely do the in-person thing but at the time this just kind of worked out I wanted to try it and we got on really well and it worked so I thought okay <laughs> when you do have uh, patients that you patients clients that you see over digital forms do you usually meet them in person first or is does the interaction just begin on that It can feel a bit strange when there is a major change in the setting. And I tend to decide whether I work via Skype or in person with someone. And I try not to mix the two channels. If we do mix, I prefer meeting in person first and then changing to Skype. But in general, I think patients are very sensitive to any changes of the circumstances. Uh, they don't like to change the time, the, the room. Sure. Do you ever find that technological barriers, for example, 
poor Wi-Fi connection or just silly things like sort of the audio doesn't work and things like that become extra interference. Yes, that's very stressful. So I think what's very, what's very important with Skype therapy that we make sure that the connection is fine. Otherwise, it is really, really uh, frustrating. Also, if I think about it, when you talk to someone via Skype, you can never really look into their eyes because either you look into the camera so you imitate looking mm. into their eyes or you actually look at their picture on your screen mm. that would make the impression you're not actually looking at them, which yeah. is an interesting thing. But I think we, in general, use so much this artificial communication or Skype and all sorts mm. of video chatting with each other. So I think that, in general, our brain learned to adopt to this. Yeah. We're very flexible. If you look at like a kind of average young Londoner, so if you look at your own kids, for example, uh, we live in uh, the renting economy and the gig economy and commuting our heads off every day. And we're always a bit late and always stressed about some delay. Um, do you see metropolises a little bit less forgiving to forming long-term habits, like going to the same therapists in the same slots for, for many years? There are very, very rarely uh, someone uh, stops coming to therapy purely for practical reasons, even if a practical reason is mentioned for cancelling or, or stopping. I tend to think about with the patient what else might be there. I don't know if it's London, I don't know if it's a generational thing, but it seems to be increasingly difficult to keep in touch with people in real life because being at home, not leaving your bedroom, but having this impression we are meeting because we are exchanging messages. Mm. And then it might happen that people actually don't leave their home for weeks, but then people eventually feel lonely because how will you end up having actually a partner and then there seems to be this solution like then we have online apps to meet but there's no like a fertile social environment to form first some kind of friendships acquaintances a bit of a like groups and where we yeah it's it's like or, instead yeah. of like arranging a date and then sitting there facing each other over a meal and then do you like me or not and it's that's not how it goes uh, yeah you want to have open-ended conversations where this person might become you my, you want to see love, you want to see a nice chap or a pretty yeah. woman like a few times you mm. you want to sort of like remember oh i remember her mm. uh she's funny and that i wish she was there next mm. time i meet my you know this kind of a bit of an air to breathe to to, to grow things it's like relationships grow like plants so mm. you need the soil you need the air you need the space it's not that straightforward I agree. do you want me you don't want me decide like it yeah. Exactly, um, and it's it's not the nature of it. No. In theory, you can quit the therapy after a few months, but very often you don't. And so it makes search for a therapist quite important, doesn't it? So I think that what, what these apps might, might do the most well is to, is to help you find a, new, find a good therapist, because it's not like, well, you're going to a therapist for a few weeks and see where it goes, and if you don't like it, then go to another therapist. So how, how do you find the best therapist for myself? 
Um, you don't need the best therapist. You need a good enough therapist. I think it's important because with therapists, with life partners all together. So if you are on the search for like uh, the quest for the best, then it might limit. So anyway, you need a good enough therapist and the good enough therapist lives close enough so that you can visit them easily from work or from home, or you can find an appropriate schedule. It's, it's practical, it's not, but it's part of it, because you might find a wonderful person who lives in another town or is just not available. When you are looking for a therapist, you are looking for someone who moves something in you that creates fantasies, uh, not necessarily just positive ones, but positive enough for you to engage, to trust. And then you have initial meetings, and then you feel settled, you feel you want to go again, you might feel like, oh, I had a lot of thoughts leaving the room. So you, you get in touch with your own feelings, how it felt to be there. Would you like to go again? We can probably assume that in a text message-based relationship with a therapist, a lot of these very fine nuances of projection, of fantasy, imagination that um, you say are so integral parts of traditional psychotherapy, they would not necessarily even develop or they, the projection would be a very different type. When we talk about projection, like you don't know everything about the other, you know a few things and then you there are missing bits and then you fill it in with what is coming from within you. And I think we have to balance between if you don't know anything about the other, if there's only text, then there's too much room maybe for projections uh, that might become difficult. Or I sometimes find it difficult through chat that it's very limited in terms of conveying uh, important information. So there's a lot mm -hmm. room for misunderstanding or... If you could pinpoint one thing where you think, what you think people who are less knowledgeable about therapy get wrong about therapy, what would you like them to know? Mm, some people are surprised that there's not a specific agenda. There's a lot of unstructured free space for them to bring in what's going on in them by just talking about what's on their mind. If there is problems that tech is notable for solving, or at least improving, it is access, time-saving, and personalization. Apps like BetterHelp and Talkspace connect to us to therapists online at a time that suit us. Apps like Mood Tracking Journal or and Recovery Record helps us to self-manage everything from our day-to-day -day moods to eating disorder recovery. And with the advancement of empathic interfaces, we are getting increasingly convincing AI tools such as Vubot, which purportedly removed the need for a human counselor altogether. Here with me is uh, Calvin Benton, who is a co-founder of Spill, which is a platform that connects people with online therapists. We're kind of like an online way for you to connect with a counselor, but our main mission is to get the 80% of people talking. Um, so I think a lot of online therapy out there at the moment is very much designed to help those with anxiety um, and depression, which we think is fantastic. But we also think that therapy can help the 80% of the population that maybe haven't got a clinical diagnosis, um, just to kind of make them healthier and happier people. And that's what, really, what we're really trying to achieve. You are different from those other apps, which 
which are which seems at least similar in that yeah. you try to specialize in quote unquote smaller problems uh, everyone can resonate with it as well so i mean i use the app every day um so i go on and i talk about everything from my relationship with my girlfriend and like interesting my co-founder gavin he's getting married in a few weeks um so he comes on the app and talks to his counselor about kind of like the stresses of getting married which because often often therapy it's it's about like the self that's often why people reach out for therapy but actually a lot of things that affect us day to day aren't necessarily to do with ourselves so for instance like somebody getting married there's a lot of like external factors in that so you might have kind of like right. parents or like in-laws um and it doesn't necessarily like mean it's your mental health that needs that's like at fault or the problem which is kind of maybe how therapy is perceived a little bit so yeah like really trying to create something for the those daily problems like you say stuff that kind of just happens to you sometimes we all need a place to talk about it at the moment we sell um spill to businesses um as well as people who just kind of want to sign up the people that we're going for are very much kind of the wellness model as opposed to like the wellness model so people who are kind of like feeling good like functioning well but at the same time like want to keep on top of their emotions and want to keep on top of their emotional health i mean i've got a friend who like she journals every day um she like really tries to take care of the thoughts that she has so i'm an economist this is my day job and yes. i think one of your what of you is an economist as well i'm uh, yeah i'm an economist gavin did um politics so you essentially try to match demand for therapy with the supply of therapists what time of the day is demand the highest what's interesting about the about the way spill works is um we actually try and correct those two um differences with spill you don't get an immediate response um your counselor replies once a day and then you're able to read that reply and then uh, a later point in the day like reflect and then type out your response and what we find is that users like to message either late at night in the evening um before they go to bed or just after they've woken up in the morning therapists tend to like write their responses during their kind of other sessions that they have during that day one of the first things that got to my mind when i when i read about you is mm-hmm. whether you like to experiment with things that other disrupting companies experiment with such as search pricing for example that's yeah. one of my favorite things in the world would that be helpful in in the case of psychotherapy or because one of the trade off i the trade off i i would imagine is that if you have surge pricing so you pay more when demand is higher yes then you get mm-hmm. an immediate response for from a therapist yes. would that be good or would actually that would would that be actually bad in some ways i i really like the idea of kind of using economics to like correct supply and demand issues um and i won't talk about the experience as well because i don't think we've had enough experience in that but um like an amazing company over in the us called crisis text line because that's a kind of like sos hotline people who are in crisis will kind of text the service but what they were able to do is is pick up on those pick up on those times and then incentivize their volunteers and then they're able to get a lot more supply for those times when people need a little bit more help which is an incredible tool often um like I don't know let's take for instance like maybe the samaritans um they kind of like will will plan in advance um but with technology you're really really able to kind of like get much more real time behavior from users um and I know that yeah the crisis text line over in the states have used that used that really really well we've we've talked a lot about about the consumer and I'm um curious as to what are the incentives for therapists and counselors to kind of get involved with uh joining something like spill um so I think the main incentives this thus far that 
that councillors see is one there's the kind of like flexibility so with a lot of other apps maybe like take like video counseling you still have to kind of have that session with a user that you block out during the day and like maybe you don't have to pay for a room um but you still have to kind of like make that time whereas a lot of our counselors fit still around their current schedule and quite a few of our counselors are actually working working mums and they do it during the hours of the day where spoke a little bit about earlier where users don't necessarily want to speak to the therapist because it's asynchronous, they can reply during the day, and then the user just picks it up um, on an evening. Speaking more and more to counsellors who, who use the platform, they're all actually really excited by kind of being able to reach the people that they maybe wouldn't necessarily be able to reach otherwise. And, and, and particularly, they're excited about reaching the younger generation as well. Must be exciting for those counsellors, because if I'm right, it's usually people who don't show up at therapy because they don't have a, a massive problem. There are those high valuation consumers along the demand curve where they have depression and anxiety, they go to therapy. Those are the, those are the people who the therapists usually meet. And yeah. the people down along the demand curve who are not depressed, who don't suffer from uh, anxiety, but yeah. who do have, do have kind of everyday problems. They are, yeah. they are the ones who they don't usually meet. So it's, they might derive some psychic benefits from seeing those people and answering the messages. Peter, what I would add to that, first of all, depression and anxiety are everyday problems. Second, a lot of people who have depression and anxiety don't necessarily know they do have it. Someone might think that, oh, I'm just having a bad day. Here is a very yeah. low cost entry barrier product where I can just chat with somebody. And maybe it's yeah. through this seemingly harmless, natural form of communication, emailing with a therapist. I might actually come to realize that, oh my God, I actually suffer from depression or I, yeah. my anxiety is not yeah. something that everybody has. This is actually something where I need serious help. So I see so, as a form of, you know, a, a way of, of kind of removing this medicalized prejudice uh, from around therapy that might stop some people who actually have a problem um, from seeking help to, to kind of come and have a, a positive experience. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, one hundred percent. I mean, for like a personal example, I went on, um, I went on spill to talk about like my relationships and my love life, um, and then I ended up talking about like the anxiety that I experienced at work, and and, it, and it's all interconnected in a lot of ways as well. Um, it's completely a scale, and and yeah, like you hit the nail on the head. I, I would like to just get back for a moment um, to um, to your point, guys, about um, how therapists are excited about trying out this product. But I'm also wondering, mm -hmm. know, knowing quite a few therapists um, as friends and, and also my own therapist, um, so I can also imagine that there are some dangers um, from the therapist's point of view in having a much lower sense of control over seeing the reactions or the progress of the, yes. the client. So I'm wondering, what are you talking about this with the therapist? Is it something that you're seriously looking into you know, your products can actually become a cause of anxiety for the therapist um, yeah. if the client disappears or just their written English is not good enough or, you know, th there is some kind of miscommunication. Yeah, completely. We have that. So um, like we have um, maybe examples both ways. One of clients not answering the questions that the therapist asks. So um, you kind of like begin to question the relationship. But also um, because we kind of have this day delay between when the therapist sends a message and when the user or the client responds to a message, you don't want the person to misconstrue that and then like ruminate on that for the next 24 hours. 
Whereas in like a, a normal therapy session, maybe you'd be able to like tackle those problems head on then and there. That, that's one of the biggest things that we're looking at at the moment. There's no like really simple answer. It's, it seems very yeah, similar to the, uh, to the dot, dot, dot problem of message loading when people are dating. If that's not yeah. a crass ah. comparison. I wonder if there's some lessons there that, that might be bizarrely useful for the therapeutic <laughs> relationship as well. It just, it just made me think of that experience you have when you're waiting for someone to message Oh my back. God. Yeah. And no, what, does that mean? what does that mean? Sit there and chew your Good morning, Cal. <laughs> what does exactly. he mean? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what can Tinder teach us about therapy? That's um, it. Maybe that's the real question. Because <laughs> no. the thing that I hear from people that um, users that I speak to is that like, it's amazing that we're able to get down to like once a day because often therapy sessions, it's like once every two weeks, you often like forget how you're feeling in real time. But like, wouldn't it be even cooler if there was like able to be some form of like just complete real time therapy, like your therapist is there when you need them. Um, but yeah, something to, something to consider. Would that create some sort of dependency issue though? If I could get hold of it. Yes. Yeah. You're, t- you're touching on a lot of points that um, is going on <laughs> at the company at the moment. So um, often our counselors actually suggest to the user that instead of once a day, we actually go down to like once every two days and give you the tools to be able to like go down to once every two days. And I think a big, big thing for us going forward is how, how we can kind of like both encourage a behavior where you like check in on your mental health, um, but also don't encourage dependency on specifically the relationship um, between like the counselor and, and, and the client. If we strip away any possible chronic condition, extreme pathologies, or even just episodes of depression, we're still left with the inevitable ups and downs of life itself. In the Western world in particular, we're prone to viewing anything negative, feelings included, as something that needs fixing. Therapy at its root means healing, and for some of us that means turning to alternative methods that, simply put, make us feel better. I was invited to attend Otto's sound and gong bath by the least likely person, a friend who is far more of a sceptic than I am. I immediately went on Google and searched for every research paper I could find to see what evidence was out there. There was a spate of papers from the 80s, and some mild traction around the use of sound therapy for the treatment of tinnitus, and then there was the mention of the Tomatus method from the mid-20th century. Alfred Tomatus was an ear-nose-throat doctor who developed audio-psychophonology, now commonly referred to as the Tomatus method, in which he used recordings by Mozart, Gregorian chant, and the sound of the patient's mother's voice to treat reading problems, dyslexia, depression, severe schizophrenia, and even autism. Tomatis eventually left the traditional medical establishment to establish his own branch of alternative therapy, but his method was reportedly rolled out in hundreds of schools in Poland in the early 2000s with the financial support of a programme initiated by the EU. What was particularly interesting to me was that in many of the issues Tomatis tackled, he believed that they were caused by some trauma resulting from broken relationships and poor communication, and so he was trying to repair this problem at the physical root of listening and sound. Now, the use of sound therapy has another therapeutic incarnation in bilateral sound used in EMDR therapy, where a sound is played that passes between the ears while the therapist and the client work on processing the trauma. I'm a trained classical musician, and to be honest, I found it quite difficult to get into the sound bath the first time I went. I kept trying to process what the instruments were that Otto was using, what was the structure of the sessions, or what the sounds were that I was hearing from the other people in the room, the traffic outside. But I definitely came out of my third session feeling something. So I spoke to Otto to find out more. So we have with us in the studio Otto Haddad today, who is a sound therapist. What is sound therapy and how does it differ from traditional therapy? 
Well, sound therapy is composed of two words there. There is sound and there is therapy. It works with a principle of resonance. Uh, that means if I am playing a sound in a bowl or I'm using my voice with uh, a certain frequency, then if that sound exists somewhere in the body of a person or the mind of the person as a thought or an emotion, then the person starts to vibrate at the same time. And that vibration can lead the person into a therapeutic behavior, a therapeutic work. Um, we use a lot of uh, different instruments. Uh, we use um, drums, so we use rhythm. Uh, we, use, um, we use harmony, so musical notes composed together. Um, we use a different instrument like uh, singing bowls and crystal bowls and gongs. Um, and the aim really of the sound therapy is to connect the person to themselves. Um, well, it gives actually the power to the person to heal themselves. So when you say it gives the power to the person to heal themselves, what do you mean by that? Well, how I see the, what we can say, complementary therapy or alternative therapy, we believe that uh, it's not a healer who is healing the person or it's not a therapist who is healing the person, but actually just facilitating the space for the person to be able to um, ignite this healing power that they already have in themselves. I think it's the same when you do a work of um, a psychotherapy or a psychology, for example, you know. So by asking the right questions, you are actually stimulating the person to really, um, to really see their body differently, to see their mind differently, to see the connection with their emotions differently. And that's what we're talking about when we do in sound therapy or basically any therapy. What sort of people come to see you and what do you think they gain from coming to your sessions? Well, it depends actually on the on the session, um, on the group sessions, which is the sound bath and the gong bath. Usually um, people, they come to really to have a good time and to relax and to really take their mind off basically from uh, from the daily work and, and the responsibilities and everything. And just having one hour of relaxation really can change a lot for the person. So you have a lot of people that, for example, have pain in their body. They come and they feel more comfortable or they have like had an operation and they want to accelerate the healing. Um, mostly also if they have anxiety and stress, it's, it's like they are switching um, a reset button in the system. So really they, they start feeling benefits from it. Now, the one-to-ones are different. Uh, because the work of one-to-ones um, is more actually of work of, um, of installing inner trust and accepting the self and really also working on the anxiety on a different level because then we have time to explore on a personal level the root cause of the problem and then really help them to find, for example, record their voice and analyze their voice, give them a reading from their voice um, project uh, my own voice into their body to harmonize their system uh, or working with singing bowls uh, to do a sound massage uh, to really, for example, relax the muscles. Uh, it's a very different kind of work. There are, you know, scientific research that prove that if the person changes, changes their voice, their voice, the emotion that is attached to it changes as well and vice versa. So if they change an emotion, then the voice changes as well. Now, obviously, we're talking a lot about sound and uh, and right now we're doing this call through technology and it's it's, you know, it's distorting both of our voices. 
Could you imagine delivering what you do over some form of digital platform or do you think that would completely detract from it? I think absolutely. I think we have to understand where where this idea is coming from as well. Uh, in my mind and my understanding, we are just replicating what was there thousands of years ago in a different way. We're using technology to this rediscover um, an ancient knowledge of human being. So if we look, for example, at the pyramids, the more and more research, scientific research, uh, they look at different pyramids uh, and different uh, like spiritual sites all over the world. It's just the resonance that is very important. You can see everything is made of sound. It's, it's made in, in a way to amplify the sounds of, of the pyramid. So somewhere down the line, we start to understand um, that uh, those centers maybe and maybe just to enhance the vibrations and to really maybe help the person to go into a different realm of, of healing, for, of self-healing. Uh, we can heal the body and we can tweak the emotions, but then it's all about growing consciously and, and spiritually at the end. That's why we're doing all of that. If we don't understand the lesson from it, then we just repeat the same pattern and then the ailment comes back. So if you have a guide kind of somebody who really works out uh, and works through different layers of consciousness and really start to spiritually develop the understanding of why we're doing this or why we're healing that, then that person is still very needed in the future. When it comes to trying to discern the possible futures for therapy as we know it today, we can think in two narratives. One is that because of technology and because of the ubiquity of information around us, we as people are becoming more self-aware. We become more proactive. We seek out our own content on Medium and YouTube. We make and listen to podcasts. And we also do a lot more of self-monitoring. We check our data, how much we ate, how much we slept. It can be called self-centered. Or maybe we have just more insight into how we are as people and our own progress. If this is the case, this might mean that in the future we can just take the therapist out of the equation altogether. The other narrative says that we are becoming more lonely and less self-aware. We are surrounded by less people who would give us valuable, true, useful feedback and we kind of live a life surrounded by empty likes and solitary hours. There's data to suggest that we turn increasingly to escapism and that we are becoming conflict of us, uh, <laughs> unless it's an anonymous uh, pseudo-debate on Reddit. We think that probably both of these narratives have strong adherence and strong arguments, I personally think that finally not viewing mental illness as a God-given misfortune, as it would have been the case until the 19th century, but also not something that must be medicalized straight away, as it kind of came to be by the end of the 20th century. Actually, self-awareness and self-tracking with available technological assistance is, is good news for our mental health. And in an era of non-stop screen time, algorithmically influenced intimate and public spaces, as well as noisy, unstable cities, God knows we'll need all the help we can get. The question, of course, is, can we say which road is better? As part of Ixie Labs, we are producing articles, a podcast and videos. 
to look at all of our stuff in one place, you can go to ixilabs.com. You can support us on Patreon or you can email us at ixilabs at gmail.com.